It is so good to see you from wherever you're joining us today, in person, online. We are thrilled you're here. Uh, we are continuing the season of Advent. And um, I thought maybe at the beginning, to, I'm gonna scoot over here, I can't see you all over there. Not that I'm gonna be staring at you all the whole time, but I just wanna have the option. Um, so, what a, what a, I say this all the time about things, but what, a, what an interesting time to be alive. And um, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, um, but there is a rising, growing, uh, being platformed sense of anti-Semitism in uh, the world, especially in the United States of America, with people who are being given microphones and are saying really terrible, horrible things, revising history, just making stuff up, um, lying. And I've also found that in, on the Christian calendar, um, so by the way, Christians have been responsible for almost all, if not all of the anti-Semitism over the past 2000 years, right? That's on our hands. Our religious tradition has been the source of persecution, of holocausts, of terror and of evil. Um, and so I, I think it's important for us to name that on the Christian calendar, there are two seasons when this really can get ratcheted up. One is Christmas and the other is Easter because we have not been taught to tell our story, our understanding of the Jesus story um, without telling it through the lens of anti-Semitism. And I think it's really important for us to reframe that um, because if you can't tell the story of Jesus, who by the way, was thoroughly through and through Jewish, if you can't tell the story of Jesus without becoming anti-Semitic, then just don't tell it because it's not the Jesus story anyway. Um, there are explicit ways and implicit ways this happens. Uh, for example, um, even among progressive liberal Christians, sometimes I'll hear this uh, depiction of the Bible like this. Well, you know, the Old, Test the Old Testament is God is sort of cranky and willing to, you know, kill people and do all sorts of bad stuff. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and God just has a much better disposition. God's way nicer in the New Testament. Jesus sort of flipped the switch from the angry God to the loving God. What that reveals is we just haven't actually read the Bible well. Um, because what you'll find in the Hebrew scriptures, what we Christians often call the Old Testament, are portraits of God who is faithful and loving and compassionate, a God who longs to hold her people like a mother holds and comforts her young. We find a God who liberates the oppressed, a God who stands against injustice, a God who longs for human flourishing for every person. You also find images of God where God is violent in the Hebrew scriptures. But guess what? That's true in the New Testament too. Uh, if you've never read the book of Acts, there's a story in there about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who die. God kills them because they didn't give enough to the church offering. <laughs> I'm not warning anybody. But look, that's in the, if you wonder, like go to the book of Revelation and you will find uh, and we're gonna get into this a little later because I think sometimes we misread parts of that, but you'll find uh, a Jesus who is willing to make folks bleed at times. And so we just need to name that the picture of God in the Bible is complicated and complex because human beings are complicated and complex. The picture of God in the Bible changes over time because human beings' understanding of God changed over time and it's still happening. Are you with me? Yeah. And so I think... Preachers and churches all over of all stripes in the United States this morning and around the world should be talking about this. 
and we should be naming anti-Semitism for the evil it is, and we should also be calling it out when it's accidental in compassionate, kind ways, because sometimes, I don't think that many of the people who are saying some of the stuff in churches about the Old Testament and the New Testament, I don't think they're, they're raging anti-Semites. I think they're people who just have not been given language or a lens through which to see the Bible that isn't tainted with 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. And so my hope is that what you're getting at Grace Point will give you the ability, give, empower you to be able to read the Bible differently. And I would say differently, not in the sense that, well, we don't like what it says, so we're going to change it, but actually going back to maybe how the closer to the first communities who produced the text might have understood it. Because I promise you, the writer of the Gospel of John, for example, who was Jewish, was not being anti-Semitic. But when you give anti-Semitic people the text of John, they're going to use it for anti-Semitism. Um, and so that, that's just, uh, that has nothing to do, well, maybe it does, who knows, but um, that's not technically part of the sermon today. It's just something I think we need to be talking about. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. So uh, today we're continuing the season of Advent. In week two of Advent, traditionally, all around the world, Christians are talking about peace. They're lighting the second candle, which is the candle of peace. I love this quote from the book we're studying right now, Marcus Borg, John Dominic Cross in the first Christmas. Our first session on that last week was so much fun, by the way. And if you're in our Grace Point Facebook community, you can find the video to that there. But here's what Borg and Cross and say. Advent and Christmas are about a new world. Advent and Christmas are about a new world. It's about being a new world being ready to be born into the old. I have a friend who every year, and I just saw it yesterday, which reminded me of it. Every year I have a couple friends who they're um, big time gardeners. It's like their passion. They, they love to garden. And this time every year they start posting pictures of their seed catalogs, <laughs> which seems a bit premature. Uh, we haven't even gotten into winter yet officially, and they're already like just totally excited about seed catalogs. It feels kind of like what Target does, like when they like you have dueling Halloween and Christmas aisles. You know what I'm talking about, where it's like they're having a dance battle for which holiday is going to have supremacy. Um, and I always find it interesting. But this is the time of year when they are planning what their garden is going to look like in the spring. And so seed catalogs arrive now because in this time of of coldness and darkness in this time when the ground is not fertile, when life is not being born, when, when actually creation is on the downswing, when it's dying, is the time when they're plotting new life. And that's the season of Advent. And I think it's brilliant. We have no idea when Jesus was born, but what we actually know is that, that at some point, Christians decided this would be the season, maybe for lots of reasons, but I think it's really poetic and beautiful that it aligns our story so beautifully that in the midst of death, new life is emerging. Last week, we began by talking about hope, right? And hope is the fuel that makes change possible, that this idea that a new world can really be born and that while we have been waiting on God, God has always been waiting on us. If anybody's tapping their foot going, when are they gonna get here? It's, it's not us, it's God. And so today we're gonna lean into peace. We're gonna stay with the prophet Isaiah, which we began last week with some of Isaiah's writings. And we're gonna be in Isaiah 11. But to understand Isaiah 11, I have to give you just how Isaiah 10 ends. Chapter, chapter 10 of Isaiah doesn't end on a good note. Chapter 10 ends with uh, essentially Jerusalem being symbolized by a tree that has been chopped down and it's a stump. That's all that's left is a stump. And it, it, so think about it like this. If we associate whoever the president is with Washington, D.C., so that we'll say Washington did something and you know an entire city doesn't do something, right? It's, but we're using it metaphorically. Jerusalem then would be symbolic of the kings who had descended from David, 
right? So you had David, who is this great king, this, this, um, this leader who is sort of the ideal king for the, the Jewish people. He represents a time when things were going, seemed pretty well, when there was stability, when there was unity among the tribes that had previously not really been united. And he was the measuring stick by which every other king would be measured, right? David was the person. And so the people who have descended from David, most of them have failed to uphold what people believe David's legacy was. Now, I want you to know, David, um, how many of you have read the story of David in the Bible? How many of you, when people are like, David's great, you're like, oh, is there another one? Because that guy seems complicated. Of course he's complicated. David is not a nice guy. Um, David is kind of like, how many of you watched House of Cards? He's Frank Underwood, right? He's the guy who shouldn't be anywhere near the, the leadership. He, he has no connection. He shouldn't be president, but somehow all the right people keep dying and David ends up being president. Um, now, I wanna suggest a great book. It's a book I've read at least five or six times and I just love it. A scholar named Joel Baden wrote a book called The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. Um, and he does a beautiful job at sort of helping us read between the lines of the David story. So David's a complicated person, but he's also the ideal figure in that um, sometimes things look better in hindsight. Would you agree? Sometimes hindsight makes people and experiences a little better than they were maybe in the moment. And David is sort of that kind of figure. And so the, the people who have descended from David haven't done a good job at keeping things together. There was a civil war, the tribes broke apart, 10, went, 10 in the north went their own way, the two in the south went their own way. And by the time we get to Isaiah, the monarchy has been in a free fall. So many kings who have not been faithful to God and have not enacted justice because those two things in the Hebrew scriptures always go together. You cannot be faithful to God and not be stewards of justice. You can't be on the right side of God and on the wrong side of the poor. You can't be on the right side of God and on the wrong side of the oppressed. Are you with me? Like that's the understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. And David was such a mixed bag in so many other ways too. Like for example, um, God had promised David a dynasty. In, in uh, 2 Samuel, David is, is getting on and God says to David, look, here's the thing. Um, if, if your sons, if your descendants will be faithful to me, I'm going to give you a dynasty so that from now on, one of your descendants will always be on the throne. But that in Isaiah's time is being threatened. Um, there's a growing power, the Assyrian empire that is wiping out everybody. It eventually wiped out the Northern kingdoms of Israel. The 10 tribes in the North were gone and lost to history because of the Assyrian empire. It is a major, major threat. And this image of Jerusalem being a tree that has fallen and nothing left but a stump is an image of the failure of David's descendants and also this looming threat of the Assyrian empire. And this is what Isaiah writes in chapter 11. So Isaiah ends chapter 10 on a real low note. It's this depressing image of where things stand and the threat that's looming. But then in Isaiah 11, he writes this, a shoot shall come out of the, from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse, by the way, is David's father, right? So this is a way of talking about David's line. A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees 
what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness, the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion will feed together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young will shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall pay, play over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is that text familiar to anybody? The whole wolf and the lamb image of lying down sort of this predator and prey are hanging out. And the prey is not in danger and the predator is not predatoring anymore. It's Zootopia. <laughs> Isn't that a great, that's just kind of a fun movie. It's, right, this image of they're just, they're just coexisting in peace. The fear is gone. And also the desire to harm is gone. I love this image. A shoot will sprout forth from the stump of Jesse. Just so you know where we're going today, uh, if you like a little bit of history, and if you like a little bit of Bible nerdery, this day might be for you. If you don't like those things, hang on to the end. We're gonna get practical, all right? So just hang with me. This image of a shoot. I think we have a picture. Um, this is sort of the image we're being given. Out of destruction and failure, something new is beginning to emerge. Isaiah has given this sort of uh, assessment of the monarchy, the assessment of the leadership. And he said, it is bad news. We have failed. Our kings have failed us. They have not enacted justice. They have not enacted righteousness, which is another way of talking about things being done the right way. They have not cared for the poor. They have not upheld the cause of the oppressed or the widow. And it's bad news, but not so fast because it's possible that God will raise up for us a new leader, one who will do all of those things. In the, in the aftermath of failure, someone will show up to rescue us. Someone will show up and lead us faithfully. Someone will show up and care about the things God cares about. We are, we are threatened. The promise is being threatened. The, the promise that we would always have a Davidic leader is being threatened. Our hope is hanging on by threads. And yet, there's still hope. A new leader empowered by the Spirit will emerge onto the scene. And to say it's a shoot from the stump of Jesse is a way of saying, there's a future David coming. Our greatest days aren't behind us. Perhaps even our greatest leaders aren't behind us, but there's, there are others who are coming. A new leader will come and restore the glory and stability that we've lost. A new leader will come and be empowered by the Spirit to enact justice. I love what Walter Brueggemann says in his commentary on this chapter. Um, and he says it so beautifully and so flowery. I'm not even gonna try to translate it. I'm just gonna read you his, his bit on this. This familiar and eloquent passage of promise begins with a stump, a terminated plant from which nothing can grow. The context is a deep failure of the Davidic dynasty, the one that had carried the hopes of Judah. The deep failure assumed here could be in a crisis of Ahaz or Hezekiah, these Judean kings, Judah kings. Or it could possibly refer to the exile of the sixth century. We're not told. Either way, Judah's Davidic hopes are spent. And now in the face of that spent hope, the poet asserts a new generativity with a sprout, unnamed and unidentified, but a faint sign of life, growth, and possibility. 
This promissory oracle thus articulates the coming of a new royal figure in a time who will positively enact all that is best in royal power, all that the Davidic kings heretofore had failed to accomplish. Imagine, it's all falling apart. And then somebody steps up to the plate and they do so to enact justice and compassion and mercy. You can see why for the people who had the experience of Jesus in their lifetimes, that their experience of Jesus led them to reimagine what this would look like. Actually, one of the names for Jesus that he gets called, one of the titles placed on him, at least in the gospels, is this idea of son of David. Here's an example. In Mark chapter 10, um, Mark writes, they came to Jericho and as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, and I just have to, for Bible nerds, I just have to say this. Um, Bartimaeus in Hebrew actually means son of Timaeus. Mark is assuming we don't know it. <laughs> so he's like, hey, by the way, those of you who don't speak or read, here's what you need to know. A blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Why would they try to silence him? Because son of David is a title that has a certain amount of treasonous weight to it. If Caesar rules the world and you're calling somebody else son of David, what does that mean? It means you're asserting somebody else should be in charge. And Bartimaeus here, what's powerful, this story functions metaphorically because if you pay attention to what Mark's doing in his gospel, you have Bartimaeus here who can't see physically, but he actually sees. And Jesus is surrounded by people who can see him physically, but they totally don't get it. Every time he does something, they're like, I don't get it. When he says it, they're like, I don't get it. And Bartimaeus is going, that right there, that guy, son of David. By the way, do you see why um, in the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, especially Luke, Luke has this understanding that Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth, not the rock band. You're talking about the village. And Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth because guess where Jesus likely was from? Nazareth. But according to tradition, where is Messiah going to be born? Bethlehem, right? Luke Luke wants us to see, Matthew also wants us to see Jesus as the son of David and all the implications that that means. So when the first Christians, or they weren't Christian, but we call them that, when they went back, these Jesus followers went back to their text and began to reimagine it, they saw texts like this and were like, Jesus is the sprout from the stump of Jesse. Jesus is the one who is leading us in a different way. To put it another way, Jesus is the new David, David 2.0. But interestingly, Jesus is nothing like David. He's the new David in that he's going, in their estimation, he's leading the people in a certain path, and yet he's really not like David. Did you know David? In First Chronicles, we have this story recounted to us where David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build God a house where they could centralize their religious practice. And God actually says to David, um, I know you want to build a temple for me, but your hands have too much blood on them. You can't build the temple because you're a person of blood. You have achieved everything you've achieved by causing other human beings to suffer. And you can't build the temple. David had too much blood on his hands. And Jesus emerges as the new David with no blood on his hands. Actually quite the opposite. Rather than cause people to suffer, Jesus was willing to suffer. 
Rather than to make someone bleed, Jesus was willing to bleed. Jesus was the nonviolent David, leading people in a path, not of harming those who disagreed with them, but a path of seeking peace on earth. Great preacher Fred Craddock said, many people are so obsessed with the second coming because deep down they were really disappointed with the first one. You ever heard anybody say this? The first time Jesus came like a lamb and they crucified him. But the second time he's coming like a lion. Anybody heard that before? And what's the implication? The first time he was willing to bleed, the second time he's gonna make people bleed. Right? The first time he was meek and mild and kind, and the second time he's gonna have realized that didn't work out so well, and he's gonna be willing to use violence to get the job done. Can, can you think about how little imagination that is? This idea that for God to right the world, God has to use violence. Does that seem divine to you? Like, just imagine you're God. Lots of us act like we are anyway. Let's just imagine for just a minute we are. The best you've got up your sleeve for the world is, gosh, it's, it's, it's tough down there. People are hurting each other. There's a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of people who are starving to death, people who are being harmed. I've got to fix this. So I'm just going to go do more of that. Really? You're God and that's the best you can come up with. That really to me sounds like a human solution being wrapped in divine language. And what's so powerful about the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's this scene where people take this language from where um, the writer is, is sad because no one is deemed worthy to open these scrolls. I'm not gonna get into it. Don't wanna ruin your Christmas. Um, can't open the scrolls, can't get it done. But then someone steps up and the writer talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah is on the scene. And he's talking about Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy and able. But then the, the camera pans over and the next line, the writer says, and I looked and I saw a lamb that had been slain. The lion is the lamb. What's being asserted is not Jesus came the first time and was a lamb and now he's a lion. What's being asserted is this is actually the way. That the slain lamb has the courage. The slain lamb has the, the, uh, the, the energy to do what needs to be done, which is not to harm and wound and kill, but which is to bring peace on earth, which, which is to bring wholeness and healing on earth. I think the question we have to ask is what kind of peace? David presided over some peace, some kind of peace. In the world Jesus was born into, there was already peace on earth. The Roman Caesar had brought peace on earth. Literally, they were singing and writing about it. One of the titles of Caesar Augustus was bringer of peace. And do you know how Rome brought peace on earth? They just killed everybody who disagreed with them. One Roman historian actually said, the Romans make a desert and call it peace. Kill all of our enemies and there's nobody left to resist us. And really the question of Advent is what kind of peace does the world need? Does the world need peace through victory? Isn't that the best way to get peace in our mind? Isn't that maybe the most fulfilling way to get peace when you just beat everybody else around you? When you just dominate the competition? 
When you just show everybody how superior you are and how superior your weapons are and how superior your program is and you're just the one who got it all and you, you defeated everybody. That's one way of doing it. And that's the way throughout human history. That's the way throughout the history of this particular country we find ourselves in. That's how we've approached trying to bring peace. We'll bring peace through military victory. We'll bring peace through violence. We'll bring peace through figuring out ways to silence the opposition. And yet the way of Jesus is about peace through justice. Peace through justice. Think think about this. Um, I I think about this often. The, The way we typically end wars in our world is somebody just gets beaten up so badly that they can't fight anymore and they wave the white flag, but it actually doesn't change anything. Right. After World War I, there was still a World War II involving the same people. But because ultimately, victory alone doesn't transform. Justice does. Which is why the peace Jesus brings, I think we have this image that it's this calm, quiet, tranquil peace, like just sitting around thinking inner thoughts about how good things are. Is that what you think of when you think of peace? Like somebody who just walks a couple inches off the ground, And anytime something's going on, they're not stressed about it. They just have this kind of calm vibe to them. They're like, just chill. It's all good. I have inner peace. Look, inner peace is so important. I hope we all find it in some way in this life. I really do. But when Christmas, this Christmas story talks about peace on earth, they are not talking about inner peace. They are actually talking about peace on earth. And peace on earth requires justice. One of the common refrains of protests over the past couple of years have been no justice, no peace. And I've said it before, that is not a threat, it is a realization. That until there is justice, until no one is hungry, until no one is unhoused, until no one is abused, until no one is forgotten, marginalized, persecuted, and left out, we can never be truly at peace. Peace isn't always calm, quiet, and tranquil. Sometimes peace, the longing for peace on earth, fills the streets with nonviolent protest. Sometimes the desire for peace on earth comes through a raised, passionate voice calling for justice to be done. Martin Luther King's desire was peace on earth, but peace on earth could not exist and still can't exist when the conditions the way they are. So King, people like King, people like Gandhi, people like Jesus led movements calling for justice so that peace could be done on earth as it is in heaven. The desire for peace stands up for the dehumanized. The desire for peace peace defends the oppressed. The desire for peace doesn't just sit back and focus on our own inner life. The desire for peace spills out into the world and asks, what can be done to make the world a more just place so that peace can finally exist? Peace calls the oppressors to stop oppressing, but more than that, to become people who realize why being oppressors is wrong. Peace is ultimately about transformation of everything and everybody. And so here's the practical part. If we are people who long for peace on earth, what does that look like in our own everyday sort of ordinary life context? What does it look like for me to care about peace, but not just my inner peace, but the peace in the world around me? Sometimes I think that means using my voice to make things uncomfortable, right? 
And what's interesting is often it's the peacemakers who are called the troublemakers. There's, there, by the way, there's the reason why Jesus has a beatitude for the peacemakers. They're often the people get it, get standing in the middle of what's going on in the world. Peacemaking is a difficult path to take because people who are oppressing others don't like to hear that being an oppressor is dehumanizing others and it's dehumanizing the oppressor themselves and it's not a good way to be human in the world. When you're pointing out the problems with the way things are, it doesn't make you necessarily a popular person. And yet that is the invitation of Christmas at times, to seek peace even when it's uncomfortable, to seek the kind of peace that heals, transforms, and makes everything right. And I know that regardless of what I do tomorrow, the world is not going to be that. But I also know that if I don't show up tomorrow and seek to be a peacemaker in the world, it's never going to happen. Right, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the struggle. Do you ever feel like, well, if I just show up and do the right thing, it's not gonna make the world different tomorrow. And I like immediate results. Anybody else? I don't like waiting. I just want to do one thing and it's like peace on earth and there's a rainbow and we're all happy. <laughs> Unicorns are flying in the sky. I just want that world. That's not how it happens. Peace on earth happens in small, incremental, everyday choices that we make to show up, to use our voice, to seek healing, to participate in transformation. While we've been waiting on God to bring peace on earth, you're gonna be shocked to hear this, God has been waiting on us to enact peace on earth. And Jesus, this new David figure, 2.0, who his first followers saw as being a person who could lead us on this path because Jesus takes the path not of violence and not of making people suffer, but of willingly suffering And it's so profound that through his death, his followers actually saw a path to peace. Through giving himself away, they saw a prescription for human hope and flourishing and peace in the world. I don't know what your context is every day. I don't know what your world's like. I don't know know how annoying your boss is. I just know how annoying I am. I I don't know what the pressures on your life are. But I know that if we begin to frame ourselves in our own brains and hearts as we are peacemakers, invited to show up in our moments and make peace out of whatever we can. Sometimes it feels like walking into the world is like walking onto an episode of Chopped. (laughs) How many watch the show Chopped? They just give you this random collection of stuff and they're like, make something out of it. It feels like every day we wake up and it's like, I don't know what to do with sea urchin and sugar. That just sounds horrible. And some days that's what we're given in the world and we're invited to try to make peace with it. Not just internal, but external peace. May, May we be peacemakers. May we show up in the world joining Jesus, joining the prophets before Jesus and those who have come since Jesus to see a world of peace not just in sentiment, but in reality. Not just at Christmas, but year round because we are pursuing justice and pursuing transformation and we're pursuing equity and wholeness for every single human being. Are you with me? Yeah.